In chapter 16, we'll be looking through that parable together over the next few minutes. Uh, that'll be this week and next week. So this week we'll look at the first parable, next week we'll look at the other very strange parable in the second half of Luke chapter 16 that we'll see then. But for now, uh, we'll do the first half, so let's pray and ask God to help us as we come and hear his word together. Heavenly Father, you spoke and all creation sprang into existence, and you speak by that same powerful word now and bring life, new life, into our lives and our hearts. Father, we pray that this word this morning would be powerful as you promised, that you would speak it to us, and that you would take it and bind it to our hearts, so that we might grow in our trust of you and our love of you. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. I want to start this morning by telling you a little bit, a bit about my father-in-law, so my wife Emily's dad. He is probably the most cautious man I have ever met. So I'll give you a couple of examples. Uh, when Emily and I got married, we'd often go over for dinner to his place once every couple of weeks or so, and we'd have a lovely dinner, we'd go to leave, he'd walk us up to the top of his driveway, uh, and we'd get in the car and we'd drive off, and he'd stand there and watch us leave. And not because he was just hoping we'd stay a bit a little bit longer or anything like that, but because at the end of his street you had to come to a stop and turn to go up the hill. But uh, anyway, he lives uh, in a kind of dead end part of uh, the suburb, and he was watching to make sure that our brake lights were still all working. Every week, he would always check that all three of our brake lights uh, were working, which gave me great joy. Then when I'd used to roll rather than use the brake lights uh, before turning the corner. Um, you'd call him up on the telephone to you know, get some details off him for something, a phone number or a bank account or something, and you'd tell him and then he'd repeat it back to you and then he'd want you to repeat it again and this would go back three or four times. He was very cautious. He wanted to make sure everything was working properly. Which is why it blows my mind that when my wife was 15, he let her go and exchange by herself to France, where he couldn't control anything. She was going to be off by herself for six weeks. And I'd just like to point out before I keep telling you what happened, I've got full permission to tell this story, um, because my father-in-law didn't just let my wife go to France, he also gave her a credit card in case of emergencies. And there were a lot of emergencies. Every day to and from school, she would have to buy a French pastry, because, of course, that's what you have to do when you're in rural France. Uh, there were three pairs of dress, uh, three dresses, three pairs of pants, some tops, several pieces of jewellery, two hats, and a pair of Doc Martens. Sounds a little bit like the Hungry Caterpillar. Um, on a day trip to Switzerland, she bought nearly $100 of lint chocolate. She says most of which to bring back to family and friends here. Uh, on top of all that, she bought a Discman and some CDs to listen to. Now, if you don't know what a Discman is because you're too young, it's a portable CD player, and they used to cost kind of two, $300 at the time. And this is 30 years ago, two, $300. All of this she bought. My father-in-law used to joke that he didn't worry about Emily for those six weeks because he could just... She, he knew she was okay because of the paper trail she was leaving around France. Now, what I want to ask is... Why would she do this? Why would she take this credit card and spend with such abandon? 
Well, because she knew what my father-in-law, what her dad was like. Because my father-in-law wasn't just a cautious man, he was also a very merciful and loving man. And she knew that she could return to Australia and that she could, uh, that her dad would forgive her and there wouldn't be any serious consequences because of what she had done. See, she knew what the future held. She knew the future held forgiveness and she acted accordingly. Makes sense, doesn't it? Imagine if your parents gave you a credit card and you knew that they would wipe off and bear whatever debt was on it. What would you do with that credit card? It's kind of fun to imagine, isn't it? Brothers and sisters, that's exactly the kind of question that comes up from the parable of the prodigal son. Because Luke 16, it shouldn't surprise you, comes right on the back of Luke 15, where at the end of that chapter we find the parable of the two sons. Remember, the younger son says to his father, I wish you were dead, I want my part of the inheritance. So he gets it, he gets half the money, he goes off to a far country, he squanders his money, he ends up in destitution, and he comes to his senses, he comes back to his father. And remember, his plan is that he'll work as a slave for his father. But what does his father do? His father has been waiting every day for him to come back. Remember, he sees him from a far way off. You only do that if you're looking for someone. He runs through the town, embraces his son, and celebrates his return and forgives everything and continues to give to his son. It's an amazing picture of what God does for us, isn't it? That we so often take from take gifts from God and ignore the God who gives them. We go off and do with them whatever we want, and we come back to God and ask for that forgiveness, and we get that warm embrace of our sins forgiven. I wonder if you've ever wondered, you know, that you'll be forgiven in the end if you trust in the blood of Jesus. Doesn't that mean you can do whatever you want now? If God's going to forgive you in the end, then you kind of have free reign to do what you want. And more pointedly, can't you do whatever you want with your money? If we will be forgiven in the end, if we know what the future holds. Luke 16 is answering that question. It's a parable about money. Money can be a, a bit of a touchy and sensitive subject in our world, can't it? It's not like this all over the world. Uh, I grew up, my parents were missionaries, I grew up part of my life in Taiwan, and uh, there where you meet someone, at least in the circles that we're in, the two first questions you get asked, what's your name, how much do you earn? You imagine asking that here. We actually do, what's your name and what do you do for a job, we just hide it, right? So we, we ask the same questions, but we're just are a little bit more sneaky about it. We don't like to talk about money. It's uncomfortable to us. Jesus, Jesus talked about money all the time. And Jesus talked about money all the time because he knew that the way that we use our money is a really good indicator of our heart. It's kind of a litmus test of where our heart is at. And so all throughout Luke, this section of Luke, Jesus tells lots and lots of stories about money and teaches about money, including this uh, very strange parable in Luke chapter 16. But we've already got the key for understanding it if we've been reading Luke 15. This parable is going to tell us, if you know the future, you know what to do with your money. 
because you know that forgiveness is coming, that will shape what we do with our money and possessions. So let's come and look at this passage in Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16, verse 1, as I read it, the main character that we meet, this dishonest manager, he should sound a little bit familiar to us. So look again at verse 1. Jesus says, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was squandering his property. And if we've been reading Luke through from the beginning until this point, the word squandering should just stick out at us. Because where have we just, if we've been reading Luke up until this point, where have we seen someone else who has squandered someone else's possessions? It's exactly what the younger son does. This should remind us that when we come to read the Bible, context is always really important. We don't just jump in and go, what does this say, without thinking about what's come before. Luke 15 and the son there is a similar character to this manager here. He is also squandering. See, what this man was, this manager, was he was a slave. He belonged to his master, but he was a high-ranking, kind of very effective slave. What he did was... He was the go-between between the master and the people who worked the field. See, the master would have owned a whole bunch of land, uh, and he couldn't work all that land by himself, so he would get tenant farmers. People would come to him and say, I will work your land for you, and I will pay you X amount of my crop, whether it's olives or olive oil or wheat or grapes or whatever else it might be. And this manager's job was to be that go-between. He would find the tenants, he would negotiate the rent between the tenants, he would collect the rent from the tenants and manage all of that rent. And we find out here, he has squandered that. Now whether he's been undercharging or keeping some in his pocket, we don't know, Jesus doesn't tell us. But whatever has happened, the man has been caught. Verse 2, Jesus says that the manager called, so the master calls the manager and says, I am going to fire you. You need to bring everything that you've got. You can no longer be my manager. And this is catastrophic for the manager. Remember, this is a world where everyone knew everyone. It's kind of like if you still go uh, out of Perth and you went to a country town, everyone knows everyone. And if you were caught embezzling somewhere in a country town, there's no way you would ever work in that country town again for the rest of your life. That's what this manager is now facing. No one is going to employ him for the rest of his life. And more than that, because he's a slave, he lives in, his, in the master's household, and now so he's going to be homeless as well. And so he knows a man in his situation only has two options, and you can see them there in verse 3. Manual labor, which he can't do, and begging, which he won't do. So then the master effectively signs the manager's death warrant. No food, no money, no home. The future for this manager could not appear more certain or more bleak. But then in verse 4, the manager has a flash of inspiration. He devises a plan, a last-ditch throw of the die, something in desperation that he can try and do to deal with this future that's coming. He'll use his management while he's still got it to prepare for that future. So what he does is he starts calling in those tenant farmers and renegotiating the rents. So you can see there he calls in the first one uh, in verse 5. He says, how much do you owe my master? And the man says, the farmer says, I owe him a 100 jugs of olive oil. It's an olive farmer. 
I think 100 jugs of oil oil, that doesn't sound like a lot, does it? It's 3,000 litres of olive oil. You walk down with the price rising and everything, you wonder how much, I actually don't know how much Woolies or Coles would charge for olive oil, but it's not cheap. 3,000 litres. And what does the manager do? He halves it on the spot. You can keep 1,500 litres. It's about two years' worth of wages that now are no longer in the master's possession, but in this uh, farmer's possession. Then he does the same to a second man. And the second man comes and says, I owe 100 containers of wheat. These, of course, aren't uh, little Tupperware containers. This is about as much wheat as you can fit in a petrol tanker. He owes that much wheat, and the manager just cuts off 20% there and then. That's another year of wages. In two strokes of the pen, this manager has effectively stolen three years' worth of wages from his master and sent them to people who are now indebted to him and can look after him once he is homeless. You can see what the manager's thinking, can't you? What have I got to lose? I've already squandered the money. I'm already going to get fired. He can't do anything else to me. So I might as well just squander a little bit more. Why not? And then the master summons the manager in verse 8. And we know what's coming, don't we? What would you do? What would you do if you had an employee that stole three years' worth of wages from you? You'd throw the absolute book at them, wouldn't you? Off to jail. In the ancient world, off to jail at your own expense until you can repay every last cent. But what does Jesus say the manager, the master does? It's incredible, isn't it? It's something that no one saw coming. Look at verse 8 again with me. His master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. Praise! The master lords someone who has just stolen three years' worth of wages from him. How is that possible? Hopefully you know that lots of Jesus' parables have a little twist in the ending, right? So it's it's the, the tax collector that goes home justified, not the Pharisee. It's the Samaritan that rescues the beaten up man, not uh, the priest or the Levite. But how on earth can Jesus possibly tell a story in which the dishonest man gets praise? And even more than that, you've got to remember in lots of Jesus' parables, what does the master represent? Well, it's God himself. So is Jesus saying that God is praising someone who has just stolen three years' worth of wages? It's, it's remarkable. Is Jesus picturing God praising theft? And this seems so incredulous to lots of commentators that they look for explanations all over the place. What was the culture like? What are we, all these kind of questions. But we don't need to look at the culture because Jesus tells us explicitly in this passage why the master praised the manager. Verse 8 again. The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. He doesn't praise him for his theft. He doesn't praise him for his dishonesty. He praises him for his shrewdness, for his wisdom, for seeing what the future held and acting in the light of it. Now, world gets this, don't they? Our world can pay a lot of money to try and work out what the future holds so that they know what to do with their money. It's why we have financial advisors. 
It's why people get prosecuted for insider trading. People are trying to work out what the future holds so they know what to do with their money. I mean, who on the street wouldn't have loved to have bought Bitcoin 15 years ago and sold it at its height in a, a couple of years ago? Would have made an absolute a huge amount of money. Don't you know? wish you knew what the future held? If you knew what the future held, what would you do with your money? Brothers and sisters, that's exactly Jesus' point. Because who are the ones more than anyone else who are certain of what the future holds? Well, it's Christians. Christians know what the future holds. Because we have a God who knows the end from the beginning. A God who has planned everything and who has told us exactly what will happen. We know with 100% certainty that Jesus will return to judge the living and the dead and his kingdom will have no end. There is no one more certain of the future in the world than a Christian. And that's Jesus' point. We are certain that he will return. We are certain that he will bring forgiveness with him for all those who trust him. And so in light of that certain future forgiveness, how do we use our money now? Well, far from being a license to squander like uh, the prodigal son, we use it like the manager, to make friends. As verse, Jesus continues in verse 8, the children of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the children of the light. You see, Christians generally don't, and probably shouldn't, think too hard about how other Christians spend their money. How you spend your money, how I spend our money, how we use our possessions, that's between uh, me and God, and you and God. Right? That, and that's the right way of thinking about it. But to our world, they're often thinking about these things. Because to our world, money talks. Money makes things happen. Money changes things. You've just got to look during the border closures over the last few years about uh, those who were able to move around uh, and get out of uh, lockdown and these sort of things. It was those with money. Money is able to make these things happen. And our world knows this more than we do. And what Jesus is saying here is he's encouraging us to use the language of the world for kingdom purposes. That is to use our money while we still have it, because we're not taking it to heaven with us, to actually grow the kingdom, to welcome other people into that kingdom. It's not about bribing people to come to church, you know. Here's 50 bucks if you come for the next four Sundays. Even less is it about kind of a prosperity gospel that would say, look at how rich I am and you can be rich too if you trust in Jesus. It's nothing to do with that. What it is, is using our wealth to show how much we love other people, to express God's love for them, not just in our words, but with our actions. See, lots of times in the Bible when uh, the topic of money comes up, you kind of think, yeah, I know where this is headed. When Jesus talks about money, it's going to be one or two things. Either you, get, you know, spend less and readjust your priorities or give to the church and mission agencies a bit more. And those are exactly right things to do. But that's not this passage. This passage is remarkable for what it's commanding us to do. It's telling you to go and make friends. When's the last time you turned up to church and the Bible told you, go and make friends? It's not something that uh, we think about very often. 
But this is exactly what this passage is asking of us. And not just make friends, but be generous with what God has given us to show the value that we have in those friends that we are making, to deepen those relationships. You think about someone in your life who is really generous. Someone that you know values you because they are very generous in how they act towards you. Uh, When I think about that, there's someone who comes to mind particularly uh, she lives over in Sydney, she's in our Bible study group years and years and years ago, and we've kept in contact over uh, the, the 10 years that we've been out of, out of that city. Uh, and a few years ago, the rest of my family got COVID. I didn't, so I was banished to one part of the house, because there were four of them and one of me. And uh, after uh, my, one of my daughters and my wife were the first to get COVID, two days later, two massive boxes from Amazon arrived on our doorstep. And they were filled with all sorts of comfort food, lollipops and chocolates and and biscuits and chips and drinks and all sorts of this and that and the other thing. There was no note with them. No, this is from this person. But we knew exactly who it was from. Because we knew who the generous person in our lives is who would do that for my wife who shows how much she values my wife's friendship, that she would be generous in that way. That's the kinds of things that Jesus is asking us to do from this passage. That we would speak the language of the world and be generous with what we have to make friends so that we can show them God's love in what we do and then in what we say. When we know what the future holds, when we know that God is coming to forgive those who trust in Christ, why would we do anything else? And in case that's not weighty enough, uh, Jesus turns up the pressure even more in the verses that follow uh, where he leaves the parable behind uh, and starts direct teaching. Because what Jesus tells us is it's not just the world that can understand the language of money. Our Heavenly Father understands that language too. As I said, he can see our hearts and our use of money is a great indicator of that. God sees our hearts in our spending. So the way that Jesus turns up this pressure is by making a bunch of statements about what life is like now and what life will be like in the new creation. That shouldn't be surprising, should it? Because the whole parable has been about what is coming in the future, therefore what you do now. So he's going to contrast these two uh, different states of reality, um, particularly with about money. So if we pick it up at verse 10, listen to these two states uh, that Jesus describes. Whoever is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. Whoever is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful with dishonest wealth, who will entrust to you true riches? And if you haven't been faithful with what belongs to another, who will give you that which is your own? It's actually quite astonishing what Jesus describes here of our own possessions in the here and now, isn't it? How does Jesus describe our wealth, whether we're rich or poor or anywhere in between? Very little. Unrighteous wealth, not true riches... What belongs to someone else? What belongs to another? And that last one actually gives greater depth to the parable, doesn't it? 
Because the manager didn't squander his own money. He was only managing it for his master. It didn't belong to him. And here Jesus says that all of the possessions we have, they don't belong to us. They belong to someone else. Because remember, what do the Psalms say? The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Who owns this earth and who owns every single square centimeter of this earth? Well, God does. And so the money in our bank accounts, the homes, our possessions, all that, who owns it? It's easy to think we do, doesn't it? Isn't it? What does the Psalms tell us? It's not us, it's God. God owns it. We're just managing it. And this is where we are unlike the dishonest manager because we know very clearly what our master wants us to do with his stuff. The new year obviously is a time when some people sit down and make their budgets for the year. I don't know if you've done that yet or it's something that's still, you know, you're putting it off until the weather gets a little bit less oppressive. But imagine you're sitting down to do your budget, you open up your spreadsheet or whatever else it might be, and before you start entering all the numbers for the year, you say out loud, all of this belongs to God. Might shape a little bit of what you decide to do with your budget for the next year, mightn't it? All of this belongs to God. I'm just managing it. Or imagine the other way around. If you had some money and you gave it to a financial advisor to manage for you, what would you expect him to do with that money? Exactly what you'd agreed upon. God gives us uh, things to manage. This is why the language of faithfulness comes up time and time again in these verses. We are to be faithful with what God has given us. God has entrusted us with these things so that we might make friends and bring them into the kingdom. And what a kingdom that's going to be, brothers and sisters. What a kingdom that's going to be. Because what's on the other side? What's opposite the very little and the dishonest wealth in someone else's property? Much. True riches and property of our own. Let that sink in for a minute. The things that we have now are not our own. But the things then, the things in the new creation will be. Now why is that? Well, it's because, brothers and sisters, that we are co-heirs with Christ. And what will Christ inherit in the new creation? He will inherit absolutely everything. And so what are you and I going to inherit in the new creation if we are co-heirs with Christ? Absolutely everything. We will own it all in the new creation. That's what waits for us by God's grace. And if that's what waits for us by God's grace, that actually frees us up not to have to grasp at the things now, does it? We can be free from grasping at those things because we know by God's grace what uh, waits for us in the future. And so Jesus ends this section with a saying that is very well known. Verse 13. No slave can serve two masters, for a slave will either hate one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Uh, One of the things that we occasionally teach when we're teaching people how to preach is what's called the impossible application. 
That is, whenever you come to a Bible passage, there are three things that you can apply out of the Scriptures. There's, there's necessary applications. Right? If, if uh, we, we're in a passage that said, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, then if you walk away, you must love the Lord with all your heart. You have to do that. There are the possible applications, you know, things you can do out of a passage. Then there are the impossible applications. These are things that you cannot do no matter how hard you try. Trying to serve God and serve wealth, trying to love God and love wealth is an impossible application. You cannot do them both. You will love one and hate the other. This is about the attitudes of our hearts. Yes, it's in the big financial decisions that we make uh, from time to time. But here Jesus is more specific, isn't he? How do we know if we love God or love wealth? Are we being generous towards our non-Christians in order to grow deepen relationships with them and welcome them into the kingdom? So as I finish, let me ask you, who is that for you? Who is one person that you would love that they would know Jesus? Could be a family member. Could be someone you've been praying for for decades. Could be someone that you've met just recently. Who is it that you would love that they would be there standing with you on the final day saying, we've made it into Jesus' presence? Once you know who that person is and once you are praying for them, What can you do to be generous towards them, to show God's love to them in action and then in word? Let's pray and ask God to help us do that together. Uh, Father God, you are so generous towards us. We thank you that uh, more than anything that you have not spared your own son, uh, but given him up for us all. We thank you that because you have done that, you will not spare anything else from us either. We thank you for how generous you have been towards all of us. Father, please move in our hearts that we would be generous people and that you would use us to bring friends into the kingdom, that they too might stand with us in the last day where we will continually praise you. And we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.